hppodcraft.com. It was well said of a certain German book that er lasst sich nicht lesen. It does not permit itself to be read. There are some secrets which do not permit themselves to be told. Men die nightly in their beds, wringing the hands of ghostly confessors and looking them piteously in the eyes, die with despair of heart and convulsion of throat on account of the hideousness of the mysteries which will not suffer themselves to be revealed. Now and then, alas, the conscience of man takes up a burden so heavy in horror that it can be thrown down only into the grave. And thus the essence of all crime is undivulged. Thank God. There are lots of things that I don't want getting out that need to be taken to the grave, <laughs> for sure. Is that right? Well, that was a very uh, Lovecraftian opening. Sure was. Uh, a certain German book that won't permit itself to be read. Hideous mysteries that cannot be revealed. What the heck are we hearing? That was the opening of Eddie Poe's The Man of the Crowd. H.P. Lovecraft was a big fan of E.A. Poe, and that's why we're covering this story on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh, I suppose it's Povember again at <laughs> hppodcraft.com. <laughs> I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I am Chris Lackey. Our reader this week is none other than the legendary Wayne June. He's so great, and I, I don't know why we've waited this long to have him on. Wayne is a popular voice talent and well-known for his Lovecraft readings. Mm-hmm. You can search his name on Audible, iTunes, YouTube, any social media site to find his audiobooks. Please do so. The man is Wayne June. People know him. People love him. And he is very welcome here. He's got power. He's got immense power in his voice. <laughs> Before we get into the plot of the story, let's talk a little bit about the opening mm-hmm. there. Poe is really the master of the opening paragraph. All of the themes and concepts he's about to explore are usually nested there. Hmm. In the story, there is an epigraph that we didn't we didn't hear in the reading, but it's in French. It's from The Characters of Man by the French philosopher Jean de la Bruyère. <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Um, the French were the first admirers of Poe, so maybe he was throwing them a little bone by, by putting that up there. But the epigraph <laughs> translates to this great misfortune of not being able to be alone. Huh. So that plus the title, The Man of the Crowd, it already kind of gives you something to chew on. Right. I think that we're told right away that this is going to be a story that's about solitude versus being in the throng. Right. How do you feel about crowds? I don't care much for crowds at all. Like, will you avoid something if you think that there's going to be a crowd there? Yes, absolutely. I kind of feel that way, too. I think I used to deal with it better, but, like, going to concerts and things like that no, now, I, like I just get, <laughs> I get real stressed out. We went to the Coachella Festival a few years ago, <sighs> and I just said, you know what? I'm done. Done. Can't do this. Too old. Too old, and I need my space. But then how do you do, on the flip side, how do you do with being alone? I'm fine. I'm yeah. alone all the time. I mean, I work at home alone. Well... I say that, but I'm down in my basement. All I have to do is go up and my wife's there, my kids right. are there, whatever. So, yeah, I'm not really alone, but I'm just very selective about who I spend time with. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I spend, yeah, I spend most of my time alone working from home as well. Once you have that much time to spend with yourself, you get really jealous of it, I have found. Yeah. Like, I like to see people, but then if it's a little too much, I get tired. Yep. Like, I got, I got to go into my cell and recharge or something. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> too much talking, yeah. And then the first paragraph that we heard, it's about deep secrets, things that are so horrible that they're never revealed, even on the deathbed. Uh And I I like the last sentence says, 
and thus the essence of all crime is undivulged you know once it's been thrown down into the grave basically meaning that there's not even a, a holy confession of any kind that it's really going down to the death there's mm-hmm. there's no like god that you're going to confess the secret to later it's just something that you're buried with this terrible secret mm-hmm. and going on that i think if all i have is that opening paragraph from the title and the epigraph my assumption about the story is that the man of the crowd is that secret. You know, otherwise, why are we talking about this at the top? Hmm. He'll never come forward. He'll never be divulged. The man of the crowd is just always there. But his true nature is never revealed. Huh, yeah. I saw that connection. And this story is a little bit inscrutable. It's kind of difficult to puzzle out exactly what the heck Poe is trying to get across. Here. It is. But I think when we finish up, we'll need to come back to this opening okay. and try and use this to decode it a little yeah. bit. But let's let's get into the story. Uh, so, so the story starts off with an unnamed narrator, and he is at a coffee house in London. He has recently been ill, and he's getting over some sort of illness, but they don't go into any specifics on that. He's inside of the coffee house, looking out of the window, smoking a cigar, drinking some Joe, just people watching. The illness must have lasted, I think he says it lasted some months. Mm-hmm. And so one would assume that it probably isolated him as well. Ah, And so he's just ecstatic to be out and, and around people. Mm-hmm. Being ill for a while does lead to a certain euphoria once all the symptoms are gone and everything's working again yeah. in your body. So it's that kind of like, oh my God, fresh air is great. Look, there's people like, this is amazing. So he yeah. is really happy to just be out among folks. But he is alone because he's just got his paper, he's mm-hmm. drinking his coffee, so he doesn't have to share it with anybody, which I thought was interesting. That is one of my favorite things to do as an adult is to go out by myself and sit and have a coffee yeah. and read a paper because it is a little bit of that. I'm alone, yeah. but when I want to look at other people or eavesdrops on conversations, I can do that. Or I can just be back by myself again and read my paper exactly. or my iPad or whatever it is. Yeah, I love it. It's the greatest thing. And, you know, I feel like a jerk about it because when you're alone out like that, I just grab my phone or my paper, my iPad or whatever. You are privy to a lot of people's private lives because they don't act like you're there. Yeah. If you're two people, then they see you. For some reason, when you're alone, it's like you're just scenery. So I've heard people on their Tinder dates... Oh, wow. Like, have it, whole conversations. <laughs> I, yeah, I've li- I listened to this guy bomb so bad a couple a few oh, months ago. No. You know, he was telling the woman how he likes to conserve water, so he only showers every third day. Not something <laughs> you bring up on your first date, you know. <laughs> and she was like, she was just like, oh, you'll have to tell me what those days are that you shower. Oh, <laughs> I dear. thought, man, he's going to get nowhere with this. But yet at the same time, when I fold in and I'm reading my book, I hate being interfered with because that's the danger. Too. Yeah. Somebody will say, hey, what are you reading? And I think, well, nothing now. Oh, yeah. I did this because I don't want to talk to you. But at the same, I feel bad because at the same time, I've been eavesdropping on everybody. Sure. It's better than sitting at any play or, or movie theater or anything to me just to be able to watch life unfold however it unfolds. And to have that anonymity. Yes. So I, I definitely identify with this character. I do too. He's got a great view as well. He's next to one of the principal streets in the city. There's a lot of people. And all of the language that Poe uses brings to mind a vast ocean of people. He says, two dense and continual tides of population were rushing past the door. The tumultuous sea of human heads filled me with the delicious novelty of emotion. Mm-hmm. And this is when people watching can get to be the best. It's frequently when I will split a place when it starts getting too crowded. Yeah. But... In a crowd, people really lose their inhibitions. You're in a restaurant and a couple is having an argument. They might quiet it down so that other folks won't be privy to it. But once there's enough people, yeah, for some reason, it strips away that feeling they that they care. need to, go, even though they will be equally as heard. But there's just enough people. So if it's a surging crowd, that's where you're going to see the car's over here, Cody. You don't know where you're going. It's just like your life. <laughs> 
No, you put your shoes on, Cody. You put your shoes on. It's that, you know, that would never happen if they were like 20 fewer people. It's true. And so it's like you get to see some real nonsense before you get out of the situation. <laughs> so he's, uh, as you say, watching people and it's getting dark outside. When he watches people, he actually likes to classify and identify yeah, he puts people into little categories. It's kind of like you used to do with your illustrations in high school. Oh, yeah. You know, you had like that. different characters for the different cliques yeah, in I school. Did. Yeah. But as they go by, he sort of assigns them, figures out the profession, does that sort of thing, right? He talks about how most of the people going by are sourpusses. You know, they just are on their way to get to wherever it is that they're going to. You know, they're not enjoying their life. They're not looking around. They're just point A to point B. And Poe goes into a lot of description here, and it it's... It's hard to really summarize without just going into every sentence. <laughs> yeah. There's really very little plot to the story, but it's very weird in the truest sense of weird fiction. And there's a lot of these descriptions that seem to be of the time it was written. Right. And I'm not really sure what he means by some of the things that he is describing. He kind of throws out words and vocabulary that have meaning now, but I'm not sure if they mean the same thing now that they did then. As with a lot of Poe, you kind of need a dictionary nearby just to try and catch up on some of the things. I mean, you can get the broad strokes, but also keep in mind that he did not live in London. No. He would have had experience with London from his youth, but I think he's also drawing on what he would have read in his contemporary Dickens work. Mm -hmm. You know, he likes to make references to things that we might not necessarily have common knowledge of. Right. Given that we're here living here in the future. The other thing about this in the categorization, Poe is really inventing the modern detective tale mm-hmm. right at this time. Yeah. This story came out in 1840. In 1841, he publishes The, the Murders in the Rue Morgue mm-hmm. with his detective Dupont. Dupont had this eye for identifying small details that will lead him to make the conclusions and tie up the story. It's a formula that he sort of created and that gave birth to Sherlock Holmes and all the modern detective fiction mm. that we enjoy now. Yeah. And I think that this is the the seed of it here, the beginning of it, where we're, we're seeing a character look at little clues about a person's physicality or outfit or the way that they carry themselves right. and then in deducing what they do for a living or what might be going on in their private life. So one of the bits here, I'm just going to read a little bit of it, kind of dissect it. So, for example, this line here, the tribe of clerks was an obvious one. And here I discern two remarkable divisions. So... Yeah. What does he mean by clerks? Does he mean shop workers? Does he mean office workers? I think it just means a desk worker, you know, of any kind. So normally a clerk would be a bank clerk. But I think that if you're doing administrative work in any kind of business and you're going to be at the desk all day, then then you're a clerk. But then, okay, so the next line here is there were the junior clerks of the flash houses, young gentlemen with tight coats, bright boots, well-oiled hair, and supercilious lips. Now, Mm -hmm. flash houses, I had to look that up. It is a house frequented by flash people as thieves and whores, hence a brothel. Right. So what the hell is a junior clerk of a flash house? (laughs) Well, I guess someone's got to keep track of the dough. I don't know if that's necessarily what he means. I did the same thing. I looked it up and I went, okay, so it's a whorehouse. Is it? I don't. Maybe he meant something else by it. I'm not sure. For me, the whole story is kind of like this, where I I gave up and just... If I didn't understand something, I just let it pass. And I was able yeah. to, to get it. You can definitely do that. You don't have to. I didn't mean to say that you have to have that dictionary nearby. If you read no. something you're not sure what it means, just keep plowing forward because 
those are details and they're fun to learn about, but you can still enjoy and get the gist of the story if you don't understand every yeah, thing that he's throwing out. But I, I can also see this type of story really turning somebody off because they would be reading it sure. going, what the heck is he talking? I don't know what any of this stuff means. <laughs> so he says, setting aside a certain dapperness of carriage, which may be termed deskism for want of a better word, the manner of these persons seemed to me ex facsimile of what had been the perfection of Bon Ton about 12 or 18 months before. Now, I'm not really sure what this means either. Deskism, I looked up, is a word Poe actually made up himself. Yeah. Is he, like you said, just a, somebody that works at a desk? I think deskism means white collar. Right. And white collar comes from the fact that you can maintain a white collar. Like, you're not working somewhere that you're going to get dirty. So that's or the sweaty. character yeah. of, these, of these folks. Yeah. And then the last part, of course, is um, saying that they were out of fashion by year. They wore the cast-off graces of the gentry, and this, I believe, involves the best definition of the class. And, of course, mm. they wear secondhand fancy clothes. Like I said, so much of the story left me <laughs> scratching my head. <laughs> I know. I think that, that that whole bit is about, sort of like in Freakonomics, remember they have the, the thing about how names will downtrend? Yes. So wealthy people name their daughter Brittany, and then about 10 years later, that's going to be the, the future stripper name, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like people try to aspire to a higher class. Right. And I think that the merchant class, the clerks, they have enough of a salary they can afford these things, but they're always going to be a year after the actual nobility, the, right. the aristocrats course. who don't work at all. So yeah. I still, I mean, I thought that that was still a modern concept. Yeah, it, I, yeah, it still holds true. It's, it's one of those things yeah. that connects to, to our time. He then talks about the upper clerks, which seem to be probably more affluent businessmen, maybe that aristocracy yeah. that you're, you're speaking of. And then he talks about firms, so it could be law firms. But the thing is that the narrator is able to pick out details about them, like a detective. One of these guys, his ear sticks out a bit. And he knows that he's a certain kind of businessman because if their ear sticks out, that means they're they're always sticking pens behind their ear. And that's the Sherlock Holmesian kind of thing that he's doing here. Also, exactly. he says their their pantaloons are designed so they can sit comfortably. So he's looking at how people dress, and that leads him to understand what they do for a living. Mm-hmm. I don't even think detective was a word that people used at this point. No, that's what he's doing. And like I say, Poe created that genre of people uh, intuiting things mm-hmm. <laughs> and figuring out backgrounds and stuff. But I have to say, this kind of thing has led to one of my most hated scenes or tropes in movies, which is when sometimes they flip genders, but usually it's the heroine who is, you know, trying to be very coy. Mm-hmm. And then the hero says, she goes, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. And the hero will oh, go, let right. me guess. <laughs> Boarding school in Switzerland, wealthy father, but he was distant. You always sought his approval. You drink alone at night. You listen to Mahler. You whisper Shakespeare to a parakeet, but still your father won't love you. You know, I hate that thing. And then she looks at him like, how did he know? He's the first person who ever laid my soul bare. And it's like their way to shorthand that they're not going to get along at first, but he really does know her. I hate that scene so much. And it shows up in everything. In the Casino Royale, there was even a scene like that. It just just drives me nuts. Anyway, that scene is Poe's fault. That's the important (laughs) thing that we need to know. (laughs) This character in the story keeps watching and describing folks as they go by. Yeah, he notices uh, the pickpockets and the 'er ne'er-do-wells. He talks about the gamblers. Again, I'm not really sure if... He just means people that gamble professionally. And is there enough of them around that he has to comment on them? Yeah. Well, they are all. I thought that was interesting because the gamblers come from all walks of life. He says that their dress varies greatly, but you can tell that they're gamblers from their expressions. Or he says a more than ordinary extension of the thumb in a direction of right angles with the fingers, which maybe is a card players thing. Just surprised that there's so many gamblers that he has to classify them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
<laughs> and then he goes through a long list of the folks he sees, the whores, the drunkards, the laborers. I know that some of these descriptions he actually kind of cribbed from Dickens, or he looked at some things that Dickens had written, and then he adapted it in his own way here mm -hmm. to really try and drill into what modern London life would look like. Mm -hmm. As the night goes on and the gas lamps light everything up, then that's when the lower class of people start coming out. The scene gets a little more vivid, a little weirder. Uh -huh. Still, he's able to categorize everybody and figure out what background they have until he sees this one guy. With my brow to the glass, I was thus occupied in scrutinizing the mob when suddenly there came into view a countenance, that of a decrepit old man some 65 or 70 years of age, a countenance which at once arrested and absorbed my whole attention on account of the absolute idiosyncrasy of its expression. Anything even remotely resembling that expression, I had never seen before. As I endeavored, during the brief minute of my original survey, to form some analysis of the meaning conveyed, there arose confusedly and paradoxically within my mind the ideas of vast mental power, of caution, of penuriousness, of avarice, of coolness, of malice, of bloodthirstiness of triumph, of merriment, of excessive terror, of intense, of supreme despair. I felt singularly aroused, startled, fascinated. How wild a history, I said to myself, is written within that bosom. Then came a craving desire to keep the man in view, to know more of him. This guy catches the narrator's eye because he is different than everyone else in such a way that he can't classify him. Yeah, he's bloodthirsty, but he's also cool. He's merry, but he's also despairing. It just makes no sense that all this could be happening at once. The physical description of him is that he was short in stature, very thin, and apparently very feeble. His clothes generally were filthy and ragged, but as he came now and then with the strong glare of the lamp, I perceived that his linen, although dirty, was the beautiful texture. I caught a glimpse of both a diamond and a dagger. So he's armed. Yeah, we think so, although it's just a glimpse, so the narrator could be incorrect. Yeah. There is some evidence that this narrator may be completely unreliable, too. We know that he just came out of this long illness. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe none of this stuff happened. I thought it was interesting because the man in the crowd here, he's got something valuable, the diamond, and then he's also got something dangerous. Mm -hmm. Dagger. So is the dagger to defend the diamond or did he use it to steal the diamond? We don't you know. What do these things represent? We don't know. We don't know. Which makes them even more mysterious. Now, fully nighttime, the narrator decides that he wants to follow this guy. The crowds are thicker and it's hard to keep track of him and it starts to rain. But he follows this old guy for half an hour the guy never looks around to see if he's being followed. No, he doesn't look around much at all. He's just got this singularity of purpose that is really eerie. He's not acting normal. He goes over a cross street, which is less busy, but still busy, and his pace changes. He slows down a bit, and then he crosses, and he crosses back on the street for no apparent reason. Right. It's like the only time he's in distress is when it's less crowded. I imagine he's kind of like an ant. You know, when you see ants walking in line, they're totally fine. Then you see one gets off course and he's looking over here. He's looking over there. He doesn't yeah. know where to go. He's just kind of going around. And of course, this is London. At the time of the writing, this is the largest city in the world. There were about three quarters of a million people in London. Yeah. And Poe has to point this out because it might seem in, it might seem not credible to the American reader <laughs> right. that there would always be people around. But yeah. he has to point it out. No, 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 no. Like there are more people at 2 a.m. on a London street than there are in front of all the theaters on Broadway in New York. So, you know, he's just trying to let you know that it is very busy here. Right. <laughs> it's, it is possible to be around people all the time. 
So the narrator continues to follow this guy for an hour now. And the old guy goes into a lighted square full of people. His uh, quicker pace returns and he, he turns and walks the way that he came the same way. He, so he kind of backtracks on himself. Yeah. And then another hour goes by and it's raining pretty hard now and it's getting colder. The old guy goes down a side street and he goes pretty fast, faster than the narrator would expect an old guy to be able to go. You wonder, where's this man going? What is he headed toward? And when he starts turning in on himself, well, he's not headed towards anything. He just wants to be in the crowd. Right. And this part was really interesting because there's, it says that street, that byway is about a quarter of a mile long. And when the old man gets to that, since there's only a few people, he flies down. And it's almost like he's supernatural. Mm-hmm. You would not expect the old man to move this fast. It's like he's got some kind of creature that feeds off of the energy of crowds he just needs to be around them it's really strange or it could be something completely different sure they finally get to a busy bazaar and he slows down again and crisscrosses a bunch they stay there for about an hour and a half still the guy doesn't notice the narrator the old guy was going into shops looking around not talking to anyone and then leaving clock hits 11 at night and they're leaving the bazaar the shopkeeper bumps into the old man At the instant, I saw a strong shudder come over his frame. He hurried into the street, looked anxiously around him for an instant, and then ran with incredible swiftness through the crooked and peopleless lanes until he emerged once more into the great thoroughfare whence we had started. So he sort of panics a little bit. And again, like you said, he runs to the crowd. Yeah. And as they walk some more, again, the narrator's still following this guy around. Uh, I I don't know why anybody would follow anybody this long. He's so perplexed by what's going on with this guy. He just wants to know. They get to a theater, and the theater's closing, and the audience is pouring out into the night. The old guy gasps for breath, and then he moves into the crowd. Looks like he's in pain. Yeah. Why is he going into the crowd? I was thinking maybe he's a pickpocket. Maybe that's what it's about. Uh, yeah. I, well, I just it seems like it's just for relief yeah. of whatever. He says, I saw the old man gasp as if for breath while he threw himself amid the crowd, but I thought that the intense agony of his countenance had in some measure abated. So just being in the people uh, calms him down because prior to that, he was getting all panicked. Yeah. It's getting later. Folks are going home. Luckily, this theater let out. So he just ran into the stream of it like it was... <laughs> Like it was cleaning him. I don't know. So the old guy follows a party of 12, but as they're walking through the town, they sort of drop off, you know, like one one or two mm-hmm. people split from the crowd until there's only three left. They go down a narrow street. The guy stops and he seems to think for a bit and then he walks back towards town. This time they're actually going to a bad part of town. You got to go where there's people up. And at yeah. that time of night, only mm-hmm. bad people are up. Yeah. So now the sun is finally rising. He's followed this dude all night. And there are yeah. a bunch of drunks wandering around. And then this, with a half shriek of joy, the old man forced a passage within, resumed at once his original bearing and stalked backwards and forwards without apparent object among the throng. He's so happy because all these drunks just got booted at dawn. Get out of here. <laughs> we got to sweep up. And they're like staggering around. He goes, people, yes. A half shriek of joy. Mm-hmm. What does that sound like, Pfeiffer? you don't want to hear the whole one i do not Mm -mm. as you said the door is being closed to the bar shutting kicking out all the drunks you know this guy seems sad and he starts walking back towards london as the shades of the second evening came on i grew wearied unto death and stopping fully in front of the wanderer gazed at him steadfastly in the face he noticed me not but resumed his solemn walk while I, ceasing to follow, remained absorbed in contemplation. This old man, I said at length, is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. 
he is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds. The worst heart of the world is a grosser book than the Hortullus anime, and perhaps it is but one of the great mercies of God that her last seek needs lesson. It does not permit itself to be read. That's the end of the story. That's it. How does he come to this conclusion that is who this guy is? That he's a criminal? Yeah. Well... Deep crime as well. It's not just any criminal. Mm-hmm. He's really into crime. <laughs> Deep crime. That sounds like something from a bad science fiction movie or something. <laughs> I think that there's a couple of ways to interpret it, and I think Poe wants you to be able to interpret it. Sure. A few ways. Yeah. With the, My first thought about it is what he means by deep crime is impersonal crime. It's the worst kind of crime. Well, I don't know why it's the worst, but <laughs> it's it's certainly something that the world maybe isn't as used to. Think about living in the city versus living in the country. Uh-huh. In 1840, I mean, I think it was tilted towards the, the smaller towns. Right now, most yeah. people are in urban environments. But the idea of getting robbed, stolen from by somebody you don't even know, mm-hmm. it, that's something that happens in the city. I think conflicts are a little more personal. This man is that man that will be in any crowd. Once there's a big enough crowd in personal crime, it, it comes in. Mm-hmm. And this man sort of represents that. He's the man of the crowd. He's always going to be there to pick your pocket or stab you and take your stuff. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Probably more likely is that the man is guilty of something because that's been the theme of the whole thing. Right. You know, that there are these terrible secrets that can't be divulged to anyone. And he's he's almost like a ghost. He's a restless spirit because there's no way that he can just continue to walk this way right. and not be supernatural. I mean, he's just wandering and wandering and wandering. Our narrator can't keep doing it. Two nights in a row, he was just walking. You know, I think it's it's that kind, it's that idea. Like if you're alone, you have to reflect on your deeds, mm-hmm. the future. I see. And when you're in the crowd, when you're in the throng, you can dissolve. You can be part of the scene. You're not an individual. Yeah. And I, you know, if you think about that epigraph, it says the horror of never able being able to be alone. It's a horrible fate if you are so burdened in your conscience that ah, you can't yes. stand to be by yourself. So right. there is like a horror to it. And then I think also that you know that the secret is so horrible it cannot be revealed. You know, if this man were actually seen as an individual, we might see into whatever he's done. What did he do to get that diamond, you know? Yeah. So I think it's got all that stuff. Crowds are comforting because of their anonymity. But on a certain level, this guy, our narrator, is after categorization and the man of the crowd makes no sense, which is another thing that's interesting about it. The man of the crowd also represents that problem with establishing a worldview in which things go into categories. Right. All we know is that he wants to be around people, but why he became this way, what he's doing, all that stuff is a mystery. So I think it... It also works on that fantastic weird level. Yeah, there was something about it, too, that made me wonder if, like you said, the narrator's actually reliable and that this guy isn't really there. Another interpretation of it. Is a manifestation of himself, because by Mm. him following this guy around all night, he's actually walking around crowds all night. He's doing everything that this man is doing. Yeah. And if we see that he's ill and he just came out of this solitude, what is he dealing with? Is he feeling bad about himself because he knows he needs the society or... Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's also the interpretation where this is just another side of his personality. Yeah, a very provocative story, for sure. Lovecraft wrote about it in Supernatural Horror and Literature, hmm. briefly, which is why we picked it. The man of the crowd, telling of one who roams day and night to mingle with streams of people as if afraid to be alone, has quieter effects, but implies nothing less of cosmic fear. So he, too, found that I don't know. There, there's something about being alone in the universe 
here in this story about somebody who can't stand to be alone. Also, too, I mean, this story is really weird. We don't ever get an understanding of who this guy is. And Mm-mm. and this man seems to be an expert, the narrator, an expert on being able to classify people and that this man yeah. defies class. So what is he? He's that element of, of chaos that gets thrown into a stable society. So Right. All those things are there. It's really interesting. And this, I don't know if this will be of interest to our audience or not, but I, the first thing I thought about when I read this was a script that you and I worked up like 10 years ago. I know. That we took all around town, got some attention for, but it never got made. Yeah. It was called Solitude. And this guy could easily be a character in that story. Absolutely. Because it was about a, a creature that can only kill you if you're alone. Yeah. And so in order to keep it from getting you, you have to stay in crowds or with people all the time, which is pretty challenging our whole opening was very similar to this where it was like late at night in order to keep pursuing crowds the heroine had to go and deal with seedier and seedier people Mm -hmm. who were maybe scarier even than the monster that was pursuing her so when i was reading this i thought oh maybe we went about it all wrong we should have done like the roger corman kind of thing yeah just said edgar Allan poe's the man of the crowd and used our exact same script (laughs) and maybe we would have sold it still could it's about some of the same things yeah maybe i'll go back and rework it yeah it's it's still possible. On the whole, you say you enjoyed it or was it too perplexing for you? No, no, I enjoyed it. When I read stories, I just read them and I don't think about it too much. I just let it wash mm-hmm. over me like a fresh country stream. And yeah. then when I'm doing notes, I go into it and go, okay, now what is he actually talking about here? Right. What is happening? Who is this guy? Why? Even my research didn't really give me all the answers that I, <laughs> I wanted. <laughs> Well, if you start doing research on the story, you're going to find a lot of other folks' interpretations of it. Not necessarily any fact. No, but it definitely does seem to be a product of its time, which is the 1840s. It came out in 1840? 1840. was when it was published. And it really is a bridge between Poe's gothic stories and his more rational detective era tales. So it's interesting in that regard as well. Yeah. Well, we're just kind of getting started on Poe because this is Povember. I suppose it is. <laughs> I, I, I want to thank our reader uh, this week, Wayne June, who uh, knocked it out of the park, and I hope we can have back on again sometime. Yeah, he's really good. He's got the goods, and I hope folks will go check out his stuff online. Wayne June, he is awesome. And next week, we are covering another Poe story because it is mm-hmm. Povember. And that story is... Manuscript found in a bottle. Have you read it already? I haven't read this one yet, no. No. I know Lovecraft is a fan, so um, I I don't know what it's about. We'll cover that next week. We'll all all find out together. We're going to find out together. It'll be so much fun. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We're here at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. (laughs) HPPodcraft.com.